Well, I'm so thankful that we are able to be together and sense that there is something so extraordinary that happens, isn't there, when God's people gather in the name of his son to worship him. And I do not take this lightly or take it for granted even for a moment. I'm so thankful for this opportunity. So glad that a number of you are able to tune in as well from home and want to say again a welcome to you. I'd love for you to open your Bibles to the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible, um, I'm going to read out the passage. It's one of the Jesus' stories. If you're watching at home, the text is underneath the video in the description there. So please do scroll down. You're welcome to follow along there. The Lord Jesus Christ communicated so many of his teachings in the form of parable, the form of these stories that are designed to communicate eternal truths in simple ways that we can grasp, narratives that stick within our minds. And of all the stories he told, it's possible that this is the most famous and the most impactful in terms of the fact that so many of you have expressed to me over the years the, the meaning that this parable has had for you personally. And so I don't think that I've ever preached on it at Grace before, apart from last week, of course. But I want to return to the story of the prodigal son. It's in the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. We're going to read from verse 11. It says, And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. 
It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now last week, I sought to open up for you the question of how real change and lasting change happens in our lives. What is it that conduces transformation, particularly at the heart level? And I was especially interested, of course, in how spiritual change takes place within us, how we are spiritually revived, brought to life, brought into a state of awakening from what might be a, a dullness or even a deadness, spiritually speaking. And what we all can see is that this type of change does not typically happen when life is going as normal. That when things are just ordinary and things are just ticking along as they normally do, very often we find ourselves in a state of, or stasis really, of not being able to move or to budge from the situation we're in. And the analogy that we thought of was that being like on a treadmill. There's a sense in which you're not particularly thinking anymore about the future. You're just taking one step after another in a way that becomes routine, habitual, the habits of the heart and of the mind and of the body. And change is difficult in those situations. It's even more difficult, of course, when we're experiencing the comforts of life. And what I want to describe as wealth, but I don't just mean that in the physical sense, though of course it is true in that sense, but also emotionally and and in other aspects or dimensions of your life, when you feel comfortable, it's even harder. And this is one of the things that Jesus warned us about repeatedly. He, he really put his finger on the problem of spiritual apathy and lethargy that can take place when our lives are actually more prosperous and more blessed. There's a real acute danger to us in those situations that if you're not a Christian, you're unlikely to want to find God. And if you are a Christian, it's very possible that your passion for God can be dulled. And what we discover, of course, is that real change, and especially spiritual change, that, that urgency that can come into your life and an alertness to the things of God, very often comes in moments of crisis, in moments of trauma, in moments of suffering, in moments of being shaken. Why then? I think it's not that difficult to understand, is it? But it's then that you are most vulnerable. And this is, of course, the reason why we looked at this story, this boy's journey. How hardened he is to God and to his own father. How he's set upon a certain way of living, so captivated by the lure of sin and so drawn into the ways of the world. And so he enters into this spiral, this descent into sin in his life, which obviously brings him to a moment of deep suffering and crisis and brokenness and fragility. He suddenly feels exposed. He's lost everything. He's lost friends. He's lost his family. He's lost his money. He's lost all of his security. And he's totally exposed to the dangers of the famine that he finds himself in. And I find this a very evocative image because I think in many ways there are, there are millions of people right now in the world who identify with this precise experience because of the suffering that we're going through collectively that is like the famine that Jesus put into his story here in the sense that we have an unexpected external problem that has been forced itself upon us and therefore exposed our interior needs. And therefore there's a moment of opportunity. A moment when people can change and people are changing. It's been so exciting to know that certain individuals in our church and many pastors are reporting these stories of people who are either coming back to God, 
having wandered or finding their faith for the first time. For the simple reason that in this moment of crisis, when everything external that you thought was so trustworthy and reliable and satisfying, when all these things are taken away from you, you suddenly realize the debt, the spiritual debt that you have, the bankruptcy of your heart. And you know you need God. This boy is a wonderful image of this, how he comes to this moment of pure repentance, which is the turning around. He had been running as far and as fast as he could away from his father, who is representative of God. And then he hits a wall, and a moment of crisis takes place, and a moment of repentance takes place in his heart, and he comes back to his home, doesn't he? And I was explaining to you how, in order for him to repent in a way that's real, there are these three fortresses that have to collapse in his heart. There's the lie of lust, The seduction of the things of the world which draws us away from God and competes with the promises of God. And nobody ever comes back to God or comes to him for the first time until those lies begin to crumble and you begin to realize how hollow they are. And every one of us who loves Jesus has known those lies begin to break and continually breaking in our lives. There's a lie of lust that has to fall. There's the pride of your own heart that has to crumble too. Because even if you know that life without God is is empty, Sometimes still our pride can be a sticking point. We don't want to come back to him in humility. But the boy does. He comes to him and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. He's broken. It's only when a person is broken that God can rebuild them. It's a necessary precursor to spiritual awakening in your life is that you have to be pulled apart. God has to wound you so he can heal you. He has to crush you so that he can rebuild you. He has to kill you so that he can make you alive. So we see this fortress is falling. But I also mentioned this third one. This is what I want us to think about today. Which is that the lies about our father have to be expunged from our hearts. The boy was entertaining certain lies about his family and his upbringing and his father. Which speak to us of the lies that we believe about God. Now this to me is the most important thing. That has to come down in our hearts if we're to be spiritually brought to life. It's the most important question we can wrestle with is how we can see God as he really is. To see him is to be changed by him. But the reason why this is such a vital question is because all, listen to me, all spiritual sickness in our lives is always rooted in, always rooted in a wrong view of God. Every single time. You see, this is the way the devil gets a foothold In the first pages of the book of Genesis, how he begins to make insinuations about God. And Adam and Eve, who had no cause to doubt God's goodness, suddenly feel that doubt arising inside them when the the serpent begins to question the law of God. And he says that if you eat the fruit, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, he doesn't go so far as to make it explicit, but what he's doing is he's sowing enough doubt about God's goodness so as to cause them to stumble and to trip and to fall headlong into the hole that is their sin and the death that follows as a result of it. And it all stems from a wrong view of God himself. This is where every spiritual sickness begins in our lives. A.W. Tozer, who was a preacher in the last century, great man of God, he put it like this. He said that what comes into our minds when we think about God 
is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. This is true positively, of course. If you meet a person who is passionate and in love with their Savior, whose heart is fixed upon Jesus, who is gripped by his comfort and the gospel and by his promises to us. When you meet such a person, you have someone who has a clear view of him. who has been captivated by him. But of course, this is true also of us in our sickness, our spiritual sickness. The first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God explains everything about your life in a certain sense. And there are two great spiritual sicknesses that seem to me that Jesus is addressing here in this story which are rooted in a wrong view of God. The one is the rebellious spirit, the person who wants to run away from and flee God. This is what I've been describing to you already. It begins with this doubt about God's goodness, the idea that God might be withholding something good from you that you need for your ultimate well-being. And very soon what that leads to is a rationalizing of running into your desires and your lusts and what the Bible calls the indulgence of the flesh. Because you you reason it out in your mind. If God is withholding something from me, then I'll get it for myself. And every person who's wandered from God has always been seduced by this. This hope, this promise, this lie actually. That there's something good that God is holding from them. I've seen this story play itself out many times in my own heart. I'll be frank with you. But I've seen it countless times in the lives of people in the churches that I've been a part of. The single woman who begins to doubt God's love for her because she doesn't have that romantic partner, that life partner. And she thinks, this is the one thing I need in order to be satisfied in life, in order to find fulfillment and to have all my dreams come true. And if God is withholding this from me, then ultimately I can't trust God. And so she begins to wander, first in her heart and then in action when she begins to pursue that love outside of God's commands. How common that story is. The young man who's drawn into the seductions of the world in terms of power and prestige and success and all the idols that come with that because he began to doubt that God would satisfy his longings for glory, which are God-birthed in a certain sense. So he begins to fall for the lies of the enemy, the very temptations that Satan put before Jesus in the wilderness. Bow before me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. How often we see this as being the lie which, which is so easily sucked in in this city. And what draws, non-Christian, it draws people who follow Jesus away from him. And their heart becomes cold towards him. And as they get sucked into the seductions of the city and all their promises and all the success and adoration. And making a name for yourself and becoming wealthy and all the rest of it. Now we could go on describing this pattern again and again, but you know the picture, right? And it's there in the story. The young man wants his share of the inheritance, he runs away. This is the rebel. But listen, just as important as the other side of this, which is the person who has religious duty towards God. Now, it may surprise you, but this is arguably the main reason why Jesus tells this story. I hadn't read it to you, but right at the beginning of chapter 15... 
It says that the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees, in other words, the religious zealots, and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus begins to proceed to tell three stories, three parables, three images, in order to correct the thinking, not of the sinners who are dining with him, but of the religious zealots who are judging him. And at the root of their problem is this idea of God as a great bookkeeper in the sky. Someone who is tallying up our rights and our wrongs. Someone whose favor is given or withdrawn in accordance with our performance and our behavior. Someone whom they felt that they were pleasing by their religious devotion, who these tax collectors and sinners had failed and were unworthy of Christ's presence. They begin to judge Jesus. They think that him dining with them is endorsing sin. Or that he's giving these people a free pass. In fact, they begin to think that Jesus himself is guilty of the very things that these people are guilty of. They describe him as a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, that's only half true. He wasn't a glutton, he wasn't a drunkard, but he certainly was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so, you have these two seemingly opposite competing visions of life. The person running headlong away from God. The other person who thinks that they're they're on the right side of God. But both of them share a wrong vision of who God is. This is actually, they're much closer than they realize. And Jesus comes in this story, and particularly in in the three parables he tells, he comes to deal with these problems in our hearts. Some of you have been running away from God. And I know that if we trace back, if we were to do the work, if we were to think through what's going in your heart, going on in your heart and your soul, and we were to look right down inside of you, we would discover that at root, there is some wrong view of God. It's caused you to run. But others of you are stuck in this dead, lifeless, formalistic, moralistic, judgmental, cold, dead practice of faith. And you have the exact same problem that at root your heart does not really know God or doesn't see Him in truth. And Jesus wanted to show us God as He really is. And particularly He wants to show us the love of God. And it's that love that we need to think about. Now, here's what he shows us about the love of God in this story. He shows us, first of all, that God's love is compassionate. If you were to look through the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and read the stories of Jesus, you'll see the expression of different emotions in those stories. You'll see um, all kinds of expressions. But if you were to ask the question, what is the dominant emotion that Jesus is displaying or that's attributed to Jesus by the writers of those Gospels. It's not his indignation with hypocrites. It's not his frustration, though he does show it. He shows frustration, particularly with his disciples, their slowness of heart to believe. It's not his hot zeal for God, though he has that. All of those things are present. But the thing which is most prominent in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the Gospels is his beating heart of compassion. It's described 
with a Greek word that means can be literally translated bowels of compassion. In the ancient world, they often associated different emotional states with different organs in your body. And actually, I think they were much closer to the truth than we've, we've acknowledged. You know that when you're moved and when you're emotional, it affects you right down inside your gut, doesn't it? We talk about having butterflies in our stomach, or we, we feel a sickness in the pit of our stomach, or whatever we're going through. Jesus felt this groaning love for the people that he was interacting with, who were broken and haggard and damaged and, and utterly suffering on account of their own sins. He was compassionate, above all, compassionate. And this, of course, is the very thing which these... These people who are judging him on this particular occasion do not understand. They can't understand the compassion of Jesus. Now, how does he answer his critics? Remember, one of the things that the New Testament tells us about Jesus is that he came to reveal the Father. We are wrong when we make a distinction between Jesus and our Father God in heaven. So we can look at his life, we can look at his behaviors, we can look at his emotions and his heart and his actions, and we can see coming into clear focus who God is in his essence. The book of John, John's Gospel, describes Jesus as the Word of God made flesh. God's Word is his self-revelation. It's what he speaks, the truth about himself. And words coming into a body, coming into a person, a person being the exact display of who God is. That's what Jesus is. He's described in in one of Paul's letters to the Colossians, Colossians as the image of the invisible God. You know, what else is described as God's image is humankind. But we know that the image of God has been fractured and marred and distorted in us so that we no longer represent God in truth. Jesus was the one man who is the true image of the invisible God. So that the God you cannot see suddenly comes into focus when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He's described in the book of Hebrews as the exact imprint of his nature. Like a carbon copy of who God is but in such a form that you can see and touch and smell and understand and identify with because he's a man. And so when you see these men judging Jesus, what they're betraying is how they do do not really understand the God they claim to worship. And when you see Jesus talking and teaching and living out the display of who God is, then we're beginning to get closer to understanding God as he truly is. And one, the first thing that he wants to get across to us about the love of God in this story is how God's love is compassionate. And you see this in how the boy coming to his senses, when he says when he came to himself, he rehearses this repentant speech, doesn't he? He practices it and he, he, goes, he journeys on his way back home to the Father. He is so, so badly wronged. And Jesus tells us that when he was still a long way off, it says, his father saw him felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. I see the compassion of the father in a few different ways here. You see it, first of all, in the fact that he's been waiting for his boy. The boy is just kind of a a figure on the horizon. 
It seems clear to me that the father has been in a posture of patient, desperate waiting. You know how when you see someone from a distance, you can't quite make out their features, but you can see who they are by the way they walk or something about their shape and figure and something else. It just indicates to you that this is who they are. The father glimpses his son on the horizon. It says when he was still a long way off, he saw him. And the Bible tells us that the father is the waiting father in that sense. Our father God in heaven is in a posture of waiting. He's issued his invitation. And it's like his eyes are scanning the horizon waiting for you to come home. Waiting for you rebel to turn away from your sin and come back to him. Waiting for you religious person to realize how cold and formal your faith has become and come back to the heart of God. We see also in what Jesus says. It says he saw him and he felt compassion. Now I know that when we think about God, remember what Toza said, the first thing that comes into your mind about God? When you think about God, you may import all kinds of ideas into who God is. But what Jesus is trying to show us here is the dominant reality about God, as displayed in his own life, is that he is compassionate towards us. God is capable of anger. He's capable of wrath. He feels hatred towards our sin. There are many things which are said about God in the Bible, but the thing which is dominating them all is his compassion, his tender mercy towards you. And Jesus wants us to see how the Father, in this compassion, he sets aside his dignity. You know, he... This, this, this old man, this patriarch, humbles himself, doesn't he, when he kinches up his robes to run across his own fields in order to embrace and kiss his boy. This is one of the remarkable truths that the scriptures tell us, is that the Father has come in pursuit of us when we were far from him and we were dead and cold in our sin. The whole of the Bible is a story of God's pursuit of you and of his willingness to humble himself in that action, particularly in the sending of Jesus into the earth to come and get us, to come and rescue us. And you see all of this, the movement of compassion, how compassion moves God in love and affection towards us, even when we are dead and lifeless and formal and, and, and rebellious against him. Jesus wants us to see the compassion of the Father. This is how he reveals his love. He also reveals his love in showing us the grace of God. What is grace? You, you guys are here, you come to a church that's called Grace London. And yet there may be some confusion about what this word means. It simply means a gift. Grace is a gift. It's something that's given to you irrespective of whether you have earned or deserved it, which is, of course, the definition of what a gift is. Grace is a gift. And this is why a pastor called Tim Keller has rightly said that this, song, this parable had been wrongly named. We've called it the parable of the prodigal son. This word prodigal means 
extravagant and wasteful. You can see why it's been named that, because of the son's actions. He takes his inheritance, he goes and wastes it all, he splurges it all on all the, the lifestyle and the prostitutes and all the, 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 um, the partying. But Jesus also paints a picture of a, of a father who is wasteful in his love towards this boy. First of all, in giving him in his inheritance, giving him leash, as it were, to go and mess up, which is what happens in the first place. But then upon the son's returning, how he lavishes upon the son these gifts. And he says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. This is why Keller has said that this, this parable ought to be called the prodigal God. He's absolutely right. This is the extravagant wastefulness of the love of God upon us. In, in lavishing us with grace in such a way. Now you ask yourself, did this boy deserve any of these gifts? And the answer is clearly no. But the father gives him irrespective of whether he deserves it. Now, I, I want to do something which you're not meant to do when you're reading a parable. Parables ought to be interpreted in the simplest way, that they are communicating just one idea. People go wrong when they start to read into every element of a parable and interpret, well, this means this and this means this. But I can't help it. When I see the gifts that the father gives towards his son, I, I think that these are pregnant with symbolism, that the Lord Jesus chose these gifts to symbolize things which the Bible speaks about repeatedly about the father's lavish grace towards us. He gives them, first of all, this robe. What does the robe speak of? It speaks about the father's willingness to cover our shame with his righteousness. The boy's come home, he, he looks, he looks ragged, ragged and smelly. He's been feeding pigs and sleeping in the pigsty. He stinks. And the first thing the father does is he gets his boy cleaned up and puts a new garment on him. Now Jesus mentioned this very deliberately because this is one of the things you see God doing time and again through scripture. It's in the very first pages of Genesis. The first thing God does for Adam and Eve after they sin. And they suddenly realize that they're naked and they feel shame for the first time. He clothes them with skins of animals. God gives them a covering for their shame. And you see this idea being picked up again and again through scripture. For example, in Isaiah 61. There's a passage which puts it vividly. It says, I will rejoice Greatly in the Lord, my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You ever had that experience of being at a special occasion and wearing the wrong clothes? If you're a more self-conscious type, and I would put myself in that category, you're at a wedding, or worse still, a funeral, and you're, you're not quite, you just got it wrong. 
you know, you thought it was casual, everyone's formally dressed. It's an awkward feeling. You want to hide. You want to hide in a corner and melt into the wall, don't you? <laughs> I've had this wing worse for me on a, on a few occasions now over the years. I've, I've, I only ever have one suit at a time because I hardly ever wear a suit. And I, in the week running up to a wedding, my wife will prompt me, you know, you should try that suit on. <laughs> I've discovered... Time, on numerous occasions that my, my one suit doesn't fit anymore because I've expanded and my suit hasn't. And what then results is a, a panic. I need to find something that fits me because I don't want to show up at this wedding, especially as often as the case. I'm the one preaching and leading the wedding. <laughs> I don't want to be at this wedding dressed badly. One of the worst examples of this, by the way, just remind, remember this, was when I went to be the best man and the preacher at a wedding in India. And the, the groom had arranged for us to have suits made, bespoke. And we went to the tailors about four days before the wedding, and he measured us up, and then we went the day before, and my suit didn't fit. I don't know what had happened. <laughs> I think I'd put on weight within three days of being in, Bom- in Bombay, and this thing was just like, the bulges were just everywhere. And the groom wasn't happy with me, I'll tell you that. We had to have the thing, you know, refitted for me in a panic, you know, in the last minute, 24-hour turnaround. You know that feeling of being badly dressed on a special occasion. And the Bible really, very vividly, on numerous occasions, paints the picture of that's what our sin is like. It's like you're wearing filthy rags. And there's no place for you at God's feast wearing these clothes. But the opposite is also true, isn't it? That when you wear the right outfit, you can gatecrash any occasion. You know, we, my wife's from a Chinese background. One of the curious idiosyncrasies of Chinese culture is that when you get married, a number of people show up who weren't invited. We had a set list, and at least 10, 15% more people showed up for the dinner than were invited. Thankfully, they were anticipating this. But how do they come in? Well, they're wearing the right clothes. They look like they're the part. They're vaguely connected with us by some tangential relationship. And they're there. Now, I don't mind. As long as they give a gift, it's totally fine. But they came to the wedding. You can gatecrash any party if you're wearing the right clothes. And there's a weird way in which the Bible uses this picture to describe what God does for us by his grace when we're brought into his kingdom. Every time I read an Old Testament story. It evokes the gospel for me in this sense as the story of how Isaac, when he's old and going blind, wanting to give his patriarchal blessing to his oldest son Esau. He's tricked, isn't he? And while Esau's sent out to go and hunt for game to come and cook his father a stew, his younger son Jacob tricks his father into thinking that he's Esau so that he can get the father's blessing so that this blind man will pray for him. And how does he trick him? The book of Genesis tells us that he puts on Esau's jacket, his cloak. And as Isaac draws his younger son into his arms, because he's not quite sure at this point, is this Esau? Sounds like Jacob. As he draws his son into his arms, it tells us in Genesis 27, he says, come near and kiss me, my son. And he came near and he says, Isaac smelled the smell of his garments. Ah, that's Esau. He 
says, see the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Esau was the outdoorsy one. And Jacob, the mummy's boy who's always indoors, has to make sure that he's wearing his brother's robe in order to trick his father. And his father inhales the aromas of the fields on this robe and he's, he's taken in. And the Bible says that when we are saved and we're brought into God's family, God clothes us in robes of righteousness. And it's as though the father draws you into his arms and he inhales the aroma of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and not the stench of your sin. His grace is there in the giving of this robe. He also gives him a ring, which speaks to me of the symbol of authority and of status within the family. I have on occasion visited secure buildings in London, top companies and even into parliament on one occasion. And on these occasions, you're, you're given a temporary pass. But you always feel like an outsider. You always feel like the security guards are giving you a second look, don't you? Because you know that as soon as you hand that thing back, you're not getting back into that building. But the ring spoke of the father's authority and dignity and status invested into this boy. He's saying, you are not, you are not a second-rate citizen within this family. Many Christians come to faith and they still feel like they're carrying all the baggage And the story of their former years. And they feel like second rate citizens. They feel like they can only just come to worship with God's people. They just barely get to enter in. And maybe even don't come at all. Out of fear of feeling like they're the odd one out. But the Bible says that there are no second rate citizens within the family of God. You're either a son or you're not. And when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He confers upon you the status and authority of sonship. He gives him also shoes. Now, on numerous occasions in Scripture, again, shoes are symbolic. And they're particularly symbolic of purpose and of mission, of God's mission. For example, in Isaiah 52, there's that famous passage that says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace in Zion, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Paul takes up this image in his letter to the Ephesians when he describes the armor of God, you know, the, the breastplate and the helmet and the sword. And he speaks about the shoes which speak of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Now I take this to mean this. That when this son is brought back into the father's house, not only is he garbed in righteousness, not only is he given the distinction and the authority of being a son with the ring, but he's also put into a position of purpose. This is one of the remarkable things about what it means to become a child of God, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The church is too often thought of as a hospital. Now, of course, there is a measure of healing that takes place in our lives, just like when soldiers come in from the battlefield and they convalesce in hospitals. But it seems to me that that aspect of our lives as Christians is really only minimally referenced in the Bible. And much more 
is the Bible interested in the fact that the, the church of God is more like a boot camp? You're not here to convalesce. God does continue to bind up our wounds and to heal us. I, I grant that. But he also invests you with the dignity and purpose so that you're not just in a ward somewhere lying down. He gives you shoes of readiness to carry his purpose, his mission in the world. And then last of all, the father gives a feast in the son's honor. But for that feast, blood has to be shed. The calf is killed. And I think Jesus was just whispering in this parable of the reality that the Bible tells us again and again. That as Hebrews puts it, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is God's grace towards towards us. This is the Father's grace towards his children. He clothes you in righteousness. He gives you status. He gives you purpose. But blood has to be shed for you in order that you'll be forgiven. And the firstborn of the Father, our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, was slaughtered. To make it possible for you to be at the feast. I want to say one last thing about the love of God before we close. The Lord Jesus Christ also wants us to see that the love of God is a happy love. I think perhaps here we're getting to the very nub of the problem that we have. And we conceive of God in all kinds of ways that do not include the fact of his great abounding joy and happiness. Paul speaks about the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Which can be translated the good news of the outshining of the happiness of God. This is what we carry as Christians. Blessed in the Bible means happy. And the message that we preach, that we carry on our tongues, that we believe and take into our hearts, is the outshining of God's radiant happiness and love and affection. God is happy. This is probably the thing which the religious people most struggle with when they see Jesus laughing and joking and enjoying the company of these sinners. They cannot think That it is possible that a man of God, a prophet no less, can be so happy in the company of sinners. And they scowl, don't they? Because their religion is all about misery and anger and pride and judgment. But Jesus goes into these stories and what is the main point that he labors to get across? It is the happiness of God and the happiness of God particularly in the returning of sinners back into his family. And he portrays this in all these different pictures that he gives. He speaks about the shepherd who has 99 sheep and how the one sheep goes astray and the shepherd goes in search of the one that's gone away. And how he returns with joy, he says, in in the first parable that he tells us in Luke 15. Because he's carrying this sheep upon his shoulders. He says, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He tells us a story of the woman with her wedding um, coins. 
A woman would receive 10 coins at the wedding and how she loses one of these coins. And she searches high and low through her house to find this coin that has so much value to her. And then when she finds it, she says, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then in the telling of the story of the prodigal son, this is the point he keeps laboring. That the father says, not just once, but twice in this story, let us eat and celebrate. For my son who was dead is alive, who was lost, is found. Why is it so hard for us to believe that God is overflowing with happiness? And particularly to have you. Now friend, I believe this is one of the most important things that has to sink into your heart if you're to walk with God, if you're to be spiritually alive. It's partly because this is what will undo the lies that we've so easily imbibed about God. That he's holding a ledger of your sin against you, just waiting to bring it out. That he's wanting to punish you, that he's cold towards you, that he holds you at arm's length. Jesus is not painting that picture at all. He paints a picture of a father who is overflowing with happiness to have you. I think if you believe that, your heart is warmed to the father, right? You know the difference, don't you? You know what it's like to go and visit friends or family when there's some tension some unresolved conflict and you go with a sense of dread. Some people come to church like that. How tragic. You know what it's also like to go anticipating festivity and happiness and smiles and love and affection. The Bible says that is God's dominant emotion, posture towards you, dear child. He's happy. And given the fact that most of our lives, most of the decisions we make, in fact, everything we do is basically a happiness quest, a joy quest, it suddenly makes sense, doesn't it? Why, when you conceive of God as happy, you are moving towards him and his joy. And when you cannot conceive of God as that way, you turn your back on him and you wander. We drift into this cold formalism that I've been describing. The Lord Jesus Christ wants us to, sh- he wants to shatter the wrong images of who God is and paint for us the picture of a feast, a table laid out, which speaks to you of your belonging. You have a seat at the table, you have a name card, that's your place. And you have brothers and sisters alongside you who are at the table with you and you are very much a part of this. It speaks to you of God's provision. You look at the table and it's well laid, it's a banquet. You thought you had to go out into the world to get the things you need and the satisfaction you need. And Jesus is saying, no, the feast is here with God. It speaks to you of the happiness and contentment that's there around the table. Some of our best memories in our lives are feast moments, aren't they? When everybody is merry, you have a drink, you have meat, And the oil's dripping down your beard. And you feel contentment in the deepest part of your soul. And the Bible says that is God 
his presence, his family, his ethos, his vibe. This is what he's about. He tells you he loves you. The Bible just talks of his love. He just says, come and take your place, son, daughter. The Old Testament says that God sings over us. In the book of Zephaniah, exultant songs of joy, he sings over us. And the Bible ends with the picture of this great happy celebration. Wherever did we get this idea that God was miserable and cold? It's true he hates sin, but he hates it in no small part for the destruction it wreaks in our lives. And he wants to clean you up. He wants to show you his goodness. He wants you to walk in his paths that lead to your flourishing. And he wants you to feast with him. I have a strong sense in my spirit that today is a day of salvation for many. Some of you need to be saved from the rebellion you've been walking in. There's no question about that. You identify heart and soul with this young boy who's made a mess. And the Lord Jesus wants to welcome you back in. But some of you, today is a day of salvation because all you've known is the coldness of formal religion. And the father says, you need to come to the feast. Can I introduce you to my son? He's the head of the party. And this is all in his honor. He's the bridegroom. And this is about love. It's about adoring him. Can we bow our heads together and pray? The team are going to lead us in a response of worship. Towards the end of this song, just to notify you, the live stream will come to an end. But for those of us here, we'll just continue in a moment of worship after that. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I want to confess on behalf of all of us how we have distorted you. How we don't hear the word you say about yourself. How we so easily transpose the image of the true God with a corrupt image that arises from the lies of the Satan. And how that is at the root of all of our spiritual sickness, our unbelief, the deadness of heart. Father, my prayer is that you will shatter that unbelief today in each one of us. I pray, Lord, that just as a a butcher might take a hammer to a slab of meat and tenderize it, I pray, Lord, that the powerful images of this gospel that the Lord Jesus showed us through the story would tenderize our hearts. So that we'll no longer be rocky, rock-hearted, stone-hearted, cold but so that we'll pulsate with the life of God. Satisfy us in your presence. 
as those who've come in from a wilderness place with a seat at the table and bring us as sinners to true repentance, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.